0: Greetings listeners, Amanda here, and I just wanted to share with you that by popular request, our next Between the Worlds workshop is coming up, and it is called Candle Magic. Whether or not you believe, quote unquote, in magic, candle rituals are a great way to focus your intention, shift your mood, and connect to your sacred practices. In this workshop, you will get... A step-by-step guide to creating a candle ritual for any occasion. A guide of correspondences you can use with spells including symbols, herbs, oils, colors. You'll also get a meditation, a short gesture series, a simple prayer you can use. Four candle rituals that you can use for banishing, for vigils, for grief, for calling in love, for clearing your path, for focusing. And you get a one-hour live call so we can talk about how it all works and see how to put it into practice together. So this is going to be available to purchase right now on our website. Coven members get this workshop for free as part of their subscription. And all the cart purchasers can grab it now as well. It'll be sent out on August 13th with the live call on August 16th. But we have recordings for those who can't make it to the August 16th event. In any case, we are so excited to help you light your fire. So join us. Greetings, listeners. I am so excited to be with you today. We have got such a treat, such a very special guest. We have Mara Freeman here with us. She's a British author, a teacher of Celtic wisdom and the Western mystery traditions, which she's taught for over 30 years. She's an initiate of those traditions and has been very active in modern Druid organizations. I first got turned on to Mara Freeman by actually one of our subscribers, Mallory Dowd, who mentioned her book, Grail Alchemy, Initiation in the Celtic Mystery Tradition, in our Facebook group that we have for Between the Worlds subscribers, and we were all talking about this book, and can I just tell you, this book is so Good. It's so amazing. It goes all into the Celtic histories and the sacred objects, and you know, all of the really cool traditions relating to Morgan le Fay and the Lady of the Lake, and the sword and the stone, and the sort of misty Celtic fairy creatures. And what I found particularly fascinating and actually truly exhilarating and exciting was the relationship between these sacred and magical objects that you find in uh, ancient Celtic lore and the relationship to the suits of the tarot, which you will see by listening to this episode. And I'm going to let Mara Freeman go into all of this because she is such an amazing expert on all of this. So you can listen straight from the mouth of the prophet there. But Uh, Before we do dive into these misty realms of the fairy... Creatures and the summer isles of Avalon. I do have to warn you, sensitive listeners, that there is a moment here around 14 minutes in, lasts for about 10 minutes, where because we are talking about mythology that does have a relationship to patriarchy, as it evolved from matrifocal cultures, there is some reference to sexual assault. So if you feel sensitive today and you don't really want to go there, um, take care of yourself but but I do also want to say that it's not graphic. We don't go into great detail about it, but I just wanted you to know that it's referenced. So, in any case, let's dive in. This is a really special episode. I know you're all going to love it, so let's go.. So welcome, Mara Friedman. We are so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Amanda. It's great to be here. So you're coming to us from Wales, right? Right. Yes.
1: From wet and beautiful Wales.
0: Oh, that's so exciting. I love that we're getting a little bit of that um, British Isle magic here for the show. It's all green and misty outside. Oh, that's so beautiful. Okay, so we want to just jump right in and talk about your work. So you wrote a book called Grail Alchemy, and in that book, it seems that the Arthurian legends describe the evolution of the culture of the British Isles from a Celtic sort of slash shamanic earth-based goddess culture to a Christian hierarchical transcendent patriarchal culture or the relationship to the divine, is transcendent, it comes into matter rather than coming out of matter. Can you describe the evolution of the Arthurian legends and where they came from and how they changed as they evolved?
1: Yeah, so the Arthurian legends, they are really a vast and rambling patchwork of traditions. They spring from many different sources. But it is true to say that, yes, we can detect glimpses of Celtic and pre-Celtic cultural and mythological themes within them. And that's especially the case in the Grail romances, which have their origins in Irish and Welsh mythology. Um, So in the Celtic tradition, the magical vessel is one of the primary symbols of the goddess. And it's actually found as far back as the Neolithic era, so really pre-Celtic, as well as later on in the Bronze Age. And also, as I'm sure many listeners know, in cultures from ancient India to classical Greece. Uh, Because, you know, it's pretty clear, I think, the magical vessel represents the womb of the goddess, the womb that holds the waters of life, or her nourishing breasts flowing with milk. And particularly in Irish and Welsh tradition, there are numerous stories about there'll be a hero and he takes this initiatory journey into the other world and he's going to seek a cup, a cauldron or a chalice that will bestow life-giving properties. So we have all these stories about seeking the cauldron of rebirth, the cauldron of plenty, the cup of virtues, the cauldron of inspiration. And they all in the main are in the keeping of a goddess figure and all these legends <clears throat> the grail legends and the ones you know from irish and welsh mythology they all really do contain memories of that long gone matrifocal era that centered upon the neolithic age as far as we know it could have been much beyond that as well but we don't and in fact we don't really have any historical evidence of who these people were But we know that they were similar to the people of the mediterranean and eastern europe who worshipped a great goddess of life death and rebirth at the very same time the same era and what's kind of exciting um, if you ever get a chance to visit over here in the british isles and ireland that countryside is still really littered with ancient monuments from the neolithic maybe earlier also from the Bronze Age, dolmens and earth chambers, stone circles and standing stones. And often they encode evidence of the ancient creator goddess. Um, do you want some examples? I'm not sure how familiar. Sure, yeah. sure. Okay, so um, one of my favourite, I think, probably quite well known to most people, is Newgrange. Its Irish name is the Bruner Boyne, and it's in the Boyne Valley in Ireland. Um, which is dedicated to the goddess Boand, who is actually the same as the river Boyne. And the um, it's, it's very famous because it has this entrance which the uh, winter solstice sun streams down into uh, right at the turn of the year. And there's a whole legend around this being the womb of the goddess. It's a great kind of egg-shaped uh, white because it's covered with white quartz, Um, It looks like a big egg on the landscape, really. And so you get this um, feminine symbol, and then at the winter solstice, at sunrise, you get a beam, hopefully if there's sun rising actually in Ireland in December, but you get a beam of the sun shining down there as if it's the masculine principle impregnating the feminine and giving birth to the new sun of the new year. And there's actually a myth that goes along with that that says that Boand is um, fertilized by the Dagda, the great god who often is symbolized by the sun. And she gives birth to the young god, the kind of um, the young son of the Celtic pantheon, who's called Angus Og. And he's like the new young god of the year. Um, So it's, it's wonderful that you can actually see this myth expressed, played out on the landscape itself. Um, going over to Wales, where I live, up in North Wales, it's a few miles from where I am, there's an amazing chamber, like Grange. it's covered. You have to go through a little, you know, passage from the light into the dark. And I won't try and pronounce the Welsh name because it's a real mouthful, um, but it translates as the Giant's Apron full. And that's very interesting because there's a tradition that goes all through Wales and Scotland and Ireland of a creator goddess who was flying over the mountains and in her apron she had all these rocks and this was actually before there were mountains, I should say, and she lets her apron go and lo and behold, mountains and rocks and outcrops appear on the land. And so, you know, this is another of those places where her apron gave birth because, of course, it's not really an apron, it's her, her womb. She's giving birth to the landscape itself. And you may have heard of this goddess, or maybe some of the listeners have. Her name is the Kaliach, which means the Old Veiled One. And there are numerous places in Ireland and Scotland mostly, which are named after this very old earth goddess, the very ancient one of all. And in some places there are stone uh, sort of ritual seats where you can sit on the seat and ask for the Kaliach's blessing. Traditionally, it would be young women that did that to make them fertile or to give them, um, you know, a fortunate birth, if they're already pregnant, or just for blessings and good wishes in general. And um, these are all over, mostly on mountainous areas. So we can tell that these people that left these goddess-focused monuments in the landscape were definitely of a matrifocal persuasion. What seems to have happened, although again, you know, it's, it's kind of controversial, the Um, you know, academic fashions change and all the rest of it. But it seems like possibly around 700 BCE, the culture began to change when... There were the, the Celtic race came over from the continent up into the British Isles and Ireland and they brought with them a very different warrior-based culture which, you know, it, in some ways it valued women and the divine feminine, but mostly it was focused on kingship and heroic exploits of warrior heroes. And then after about 500 years, then you got Christianity, which continued that whole patriarchal dominant, you know, cultural themes. So although we don't know the details, that's what it seems like happened in terms of the the matrifocal turning into the patri and the feminine having to give way and almost literally go underground with the advent of this very masculine-dominated culture.
0: Wow, that's so fascinating. So it sounds like, though, that the the goddess remained in the mythology of of the of the Celts even because um, so then we, what happens is we see this Arthurian legends that it sounds like evolve over like many hundreds of years or many, many centuries. And in these legends are potentially many other legends as well. There's this search for the grail. There's a search for the cup. There's a search for the wells. And, and all of these are symbolic or recollect in some way, this, um, goddess figure that lives on. Uh, Not only in the landscape and the monuments in the landscape of the British Isles, but also in the mythologies, even into Christian mythologies, because, of course, the Holy Grail becomes a Christian legend. So I just want to unpack the Arthurian legends a little bit for our listeners There's a famed figure called the Fisher King, and I'm sure most of them will have heard that or at least have seen, you know, the movie with Robin Williams. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about his story and how that story came about?
1: Yeah, well, the basic theme in the majority of the Arthurian romances is is that the Grail, the Holy Grail, is this um, treasure, this beautiful cup that has these unearthly qualities, just like the ancient Celtic cauldron or chalice. And it lies hidden in a castle, which is surrounded by a barren wasteland. And this wasteland can only be restored to life when the grail is found by a worthy knight. And um, the, you know, there, there's many stories about how this came to be. But the, the Fisher King is the one, I'll, I'll go into the stories about, you know, how this came to be. But just to say a little bit about the Fisher King, um, he's also known as the Rich Fisherman. And he is the keeper of the grail and he's wounded. So, you know, that's often a a familiar theme, I think, comes into the movie, although it's a long time since I've actually seen it. But the idea is that, that the Fisher King, who lives in the hidden grail castle... He's wounded in some, you know, it's sort of euphemistic, it says he has a, a wound in his thighs, but it seems to be perhaps some form of castration or other loss of fertility. And there he lies in his hidden castle in agony, awaiting a questing knight who will discover the Holy Grail and ask him an important question, which will heal his wound, and when his wound is healed, the wasted land will miraculously become fertile again. So that's kind of, you know, the, the bare bones. Did you want me to tell the story of, you know, one of the stories about how he became wounded and how the wasteland came about?
0: Yes, I really do. But before you do, I want to just mark for our listeners, because I think it's so relevant to a lot of things we talk about here that. So there's a, a king like a patriarchal figure who's wounded and he's in the castle of the grail. In the other words, kind of in the castle of the goddess. So there's this masculine wound in the castle of the goddess and it's hidden in a wasteland. And so the wasteland is like this infertile place where nothing grows and there's droughts and all of that stuff. So, okay, so I'm going to be quiet and then let you start up again.
1: Yeah, so um, I think the most salient story about how this came to be is the story of the well maidens, how long ago in the forests of the rich and wealthy and prosperous and fertile country of Logres, which is a word meaning the, uh, well it actually is a Welsh word meaning England, just ancient word, still a Welsh word now. (laughs) But anyway, back in those days, the story goes that weary travellers could find refreshment as they journeyed through the vast trackless forests that were all over the islands at that time, um, at the Sacred Springs. And at the Sacred Springs, they would meet the maidens of the wells, as they're called. And these would be young women who are guardians of these holy places. And the maidens of the wells would give them rest and give them food and give them drink. And they would serve them abundantly from golden goblets and dishes. And this went on for many centuries. But one day there was an evil king and he raped one of the maidens and he stole her golden cup and his men did the same to the others. And because of this terrible deed, the maidens, um, some say they disappeared into the waters themselves, which is why they're called the well maidens. They became spirits of the waters. Whatever happened to them, after this, their forest sanctuaries lay abandoned and the wells were no longer giving the water for the travellers, and the whole countryside was stricken with drought. And we're told in this mysterious little story, it's just a very short little story, um, that the land would not give but a handful of hazelnuts from that moment on. And that's the first time the Fisher King, or rich fisherman, is mentioned, because we're told that because of this evil deed, this desecration of these feminine spirits, or whoever they were, these priestesses they could have been. Um, another result was that the court of this mysterious personage called the rich fisherman, who represents the fertility of the land, was withdrawn from the world. So that's you know how he is no longer there. Um, you know, some see this as a story about the earth being the feminine, and of course the waters being feminine as they are in all different cultures throughout the world. And um, the Fisher King represents the, the dying and rising god. In fact, it's actually been put forward by this famous commentator on the Grail legends at the beginning of the 20th century, whose name is Jesse Weston, that um, the whole myth could have really been traced back to this idea of the goddess as the earth. And her consort being the king who dies and rises again, just as the year dies, and the vegetation dies, and then comes back in the spring.
0: It also seems to me, and one of the reasons why I'm so excited about it, is because it's. it also feels like prophecy to me. Because we're seeing you know, the death of the goddess cultures and the death of the earth-based cultures that happen through... A practice or a process of colonization, at least in the British Isles and all across the world, that these these goddess cultures or these cultures that are earth based in their spirituality get destroyed and then in the legends of the British Isles, the goddess essentially gets raped, and then the land becomes barren, and then nothing can grow there and so I feel like we're seeing the evidence of that as the world becomes sucked of its fertility and, you know, nature gets destroyed and eroded. And so what excites me so much about this myth is that there is kind of a, like almost a direction for regeneration.
1: Yeah, another interesting thing, I mean, there's so many levels, so many layers to this story, is that um, in Celtic times, uh, in order to be a tribal chieftain or king, The would-be contender to the throne had to make a sacred contract, which was like a marriage, a sacred marriage with the goddess of the land, who's sometimes called the sovereignty goddess, because she was the one that could confer sovereignty upon the king. Without this contract with the goddess of the earth, and when I say the goddess of the earth, it means the local region that he wanted to be, you know, who's going to be king or chieftain of. Without that, he wasn't allowed to rule. He could not reign unless he had the agreement of the goddess. And actually, since I was talking about um, these, you know, very vivid graphic landscape features, um, there are a number of places where you can see a king would have once had, you know, undergone this ritual with the goddess where there are stones in which has been carved a footprint and we assume that the Celtic king had to put his foot on the stone. In that footprint, it was like that was a kind of a symbolic marriage with the goddess of the land. So, you know, the story of the well-maidens, the rape of the well-maidens, turns this whole idea on its head that, you know, the king, the leaders of the country, must defer and work in concert with the powers of the land, of the earth, Uh, We do exactly the opposite. We have absolutely no respect. And, you know, the last thing that the leaders of our societies would do would be to come to their leadership with that, you know, humility and reverence for the earth that we saw in Celtic times and which this story so graphically illustrates has unfortunately been turned on its head.
0: What's so interesting too, though, is that we see mythologically the goddess kind of disappear because as you were saying initially, before the Celts, the goddess was it. She was really central. Like she was the sort of central figure of like the life-giving process. And then the Celts come in, they say, well, actually it's a king that has the power, but he has to marry the goddess to get it. And then when the Christians come in, they're like, actually, there is no goddess. It's just just the guy, just either God or the head of state. And then even now, as our culture has become more and more secular, it's not even a divine figure, but um, essentially capital that makes the choices. But I want to circle back to the story of the Fisher King because there's something that's very relevant for this show, which is, as you know, a tarot podcast and in the tarot, there are four suits, right so there's wands, there's swords, there's cups, and there's pentacles or discs and the four symbols correspond with the four directions. The north, uh, which is the 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 discs, the swords corresponds to the east and uh, air. The club or the wand corresponds to the south and fire. And of course, the cup corresponds to the west, which could also be, you know, the grail corresponds to the west. So I'm wondering... Um, If you could tell us a little bit more about how in the Arthurian legends, there are also these symbols, the sword and the lance and the cauldron and the platter, all corresponding to the four directions. Where do these symbols come from in the Arthurian legends? And also, there's a part of the Arthurian legends with the lance and the Fisher King, and it's a bleeding lance. And, and he's supposed to ask us, he's supposed to ask a question about that, or someone is, the knight who's supposed to rescue us all.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, so, sorry, I know that's a long and complicated question, but I just can't wait to hear you.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. A lot of it's a mystery, so I'm not sure how much I'll be able to elucidate that. But um, just, you know, to tell how it all leads up to the, you know, coming... To this procession of the four hallows, as they're often called in the story. I'll just say a little bit about um, what happens. Um, So, in the very earliest story of the Grail, uh, there's a young knight called Percival, and um, what what I should say has happened is that, you know, the well-maidens have all disappeared, the court of the rich Fisher king has been withdrawn and the knights of King Arthur are all gathered around the round table when a vision of the grail comes to them and it inspires them to actually go out in search of it. It becomes this great quest, the quest to really redeem the feminine, to discover it and bring it back to our world. And so one of them, Percival, one of the stories one of the main stories he's one of the first ones to discover the grail castle and it's a very interesting story but i'll try and cut to the chase of the four hallows so he is looking for the grail he's looking he's actually looking for his mother too um so there's all sorts of feminine figures that sort of interweave in this story and he comes upon the fisher king He's actually fishing and it's night time as Percival is wandering around and the king invites him to spend the night at his castle. And it's all very mysterious because the castle is standing on a rocky pinnacle nearby, but it wasn't there a short while ago. It just suddenly appears. So we're definitely in an other world kind of scenario here. Um, And then when Percival gets there, he's surprised to see this fisherman lying on the couch unable to walk because he turns out to be the wounded king in the grail castle. And so this is where the the Four Hallows, as I tend to call them, come in. First of all, um, he invites Percival to a feast during which a beautiful young woman, which is his niece, the king's niece, Gives Percival a very richly decorated sword and says it's destined for him alone. Um, so Percival has this wonderful sword and he's sitting talking with the Fisher King in front of a blazing fire, and a strange procession enters the hall. And the first person is, I love this because it's so very vivid. You can imagine it as a ritual, as a whole ceremony. So first comes in a boy who's bearing this white sphere with drops of blood flowing from the tip. And he's followed by two more handsome boys bearing ten candles and golden candlesticks. And then comes a beautiful girl, exquisitely dressed, holding the grail in both her hands. And the grail is this vessel made of gold, it's set with precious jewels, and it's light so brilliant that it dims the candles. And she, in turn, is followed by another young woman holding a silver carving platter, and then the whole procession just disappears silently into another chamber. And Percival, as he looks at all this, he's absolutely amazed, but he doesn't say a word because he's taken to heart the advice of this um, uncle of his, not to talk too much in company, but to mind his P's and Q's and be polite and so on. And then after the procession is gone, there's a splendid feast and Percival retires to a well-appointed chamber to spend the night. Well, I might tell the rest of the story later. But meanwhile, let's sort of focus in on the Four Hallows. So, as you know, we've got the carp, and we've talked a little bit about that, obviously, being the vessel, the magical vessel of the goddess. The serving dish is very similar it's you know a platter in which meat is carved so it's kind of a flatter dish but both the cup and the serving dish are are vessels or plates or you know they're, they're feminine symbols and then the sword and the spear obviously being more phallic they are the masculine symbols so as I'm sure all your listeners know you know, the four suits of the tarot cards are two feminine and two masculine symbols, it's like doubling up on the yin and yang here. And what is not so well known, I suppose, is that these four halos derive from what are known as the four treasures of the Tuatha de Danann, who are the gods and goddesses of ancient Ireland. And the story goes that the great gods came flying in clouds into Ireland before it was inhabited by well it was inhabited by giants but they were one of the many invaders of the place in ancient times and they brought with them from what they call the lands of the north which means the the magical otherworldly lands they brought with them these four treasures they brought a sword a spear a cauldron and a stone which as you say amanda Correlate with the four elements and the four directions. So the sword is the east, and the spear is the south, and the cauldron, in this case, is the west because it's a vessel, and the stone is usually associated with the north. And these are the, you know, in all their different versions, these are what have become keystones of the Western magical tradition. So uh, I can talk a little bit more about, you know, what they were and the cities they came from. They came from these magical cities, but to cut to the chase, Um, It seems that these were actually taken up in the 19th century by the Irish poet and visionary W.B. Yeats, who was a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And he was the one who really worked extensively with the four treasures in ceremonial magic. I mean, not that many people know that... Well, not that many people know that he was a very central figure in the Golden Dawn when it first started up. But after a while, because it was English, Anglo-based... Um, And he was very keen to be one of the people to revive the Irish tradition. He was actually Anglo-Irish, but he kind of uh, identified as Irish. Um, He started up, or he tried to start up his own order, his own magical order in the um, west of Ireland. And uh, (laughs) it's a wonderful, it's a very sort of romantic story about... uh, You know, his twin passions were for magic and the liberation of Ireland and he was really inspired to create a secret society based on the Irish mysteries. And he hoped that while his literary work, all his poems um, would transform the mainstream culture, behind them would lie this hidden magical inner order whose adepts would work on spiritually strengthening the movement for the Irish cause to get rid of the English oppressors. And this became, you know, his total obsession for years and years, probably more than anything else in his life. And in 1895, he found this wonderful place, a perfect base for his order, which you can see today. It's an abandoned castle on a very tiny little island in the middle of Loch Quay in County Roscommon. And he called it the Castle of Heroes. And his plan was to turn it into the headquarters. It would be like the chief temple of what would then be called the Celtic mystical order. And it never quite happened. And it's all tied up with this very romantic love story between himself and Maud Gunn, who was his high priestess, or he envis- envisioned her as his high priestess. But anyway, well, he, he seemed to have brought um, the story of the Tuatha de Danann into, you know, the golden dawn. You know, there's no sort of paper trail here. But then it seems that it was taken up by A. E. Waite, who didn't, you know, in himself really have any background in Irish mythology. But of course, who is most famous as the original writer of the um, Rider waite Coleman Smith deck, and um, did, you know, the first tarot deck that was designed for modern use. And so Wait, you know, made this wonderful <laughs> linking here in, and developed the system of correspondences between the four treasures of the Tuatha De Danann and the four suits of the tarot deck. And he was the one that gave them the name of Hallows, which I, I love, it means holy objects. And it's, you know, standard use in esoteric circles. So I think Jessie Weston, who, you know, said, you know, that grail procession and tableau could be easily a description of an elaborate magical ceremony. Um, She may have actually been part of or had friends in the golden dawn herself I'm sure she was thinking of that when she wrote about it but she thought that possibly that part of the story that I just recounted from Percival could have actually been a description of an elaborate ritual from from antiquity based on the myth of the dying and rising god people don't really credit that nowadays but anyway so yeah so the grail hallows that double male female pair the grail and the platter the feminine symbols. The sword and the spear, or the lance as it's sometimes called in later versions, are masculine. The sword, you know, we talked about the grail and the platter as feminine symbols. The sword that was given to Percival as a gift, classic that, or typical I should probably say, that the giver is a young woman, the uh, fisher king's niece, just as it was the lady of the lake who gave Arthur his sword Excalibur. This all follows an early Celtic tradition of a fairy woman or an otherworldly woman, a goddess figure, being the one who always had to equip and initiate a young warrior or hero into his warriorhood. It's a symbol of manhood and in, in the Irish myth of the four treasures it belongs to the king. So, you know, that's pretty straightforward, I think. And um, as you say, Amanda, it's the spear that is really strange, (laughs) the the bleeding lance, as it's sometimes called. So, you know, in some versions of the Grail procession, there's streams of blood. In others, there's one drop of blood. In others, it's like um, three drops of blood. And what, what I find particularly interesting is that in some of these versions, the blood that flows from the tip of the spear actually falls into the grail itself, which is, you know, clearly a sacred ritual of the masculine entering the feminine in the sacred marriage. And you know, to us in modern times you think, ooh, why blood? But you know, we have to remember that from ancient times, blood has always been viewed as a miraculous substance that contained the essence of life itself. It was like, you know, the, the visible, tangible part of the life force. So in that image, the life force, the blood pouring from the sword is streaming from the male into the female, the primal act of creation, which can be read on many levels, from the sexual to the transpersonal uniting of the positive and negative forces that give rise to all creation. So, um, you know, that's obviously very numinous. It has, you know, huge archetypal power to it. But, you know, it all gets rather sort of um, obfuscated perhaps we should say by the later versions of the the grail romances which had a particularly christian flavour mostly because they were written down by monks because the monks were the scribes in those days they were the ones with the education and the pens and and the parchment and so forth so in the more christianized romances which tend to be later Some monk had this bright idea that the spear um, was probably the one that belonged to the Roman centurion, whose name was Longinus, who pierced Christ's side at the crucifixion. And then, of course, the grail would be the cup in which the blood of Christ was collected by Joseph of Arimathea. And in this symbology, the blood is Christ's blood shed in order to give humanity everlasting life. And in the Middle Ages, there was a lot of uh, of iconography and symbolism in the art um, and illustrations about, you know, pictures of, of Jesus' blood flowing from his sides. It was really believed to be this precious life-giving fluid throughout the culture of the Middle Ages, uh, Christian Middle Ages. But we know it was a lot earlier than that, not only because it's o- obvious archetypal symbology, but then we have a parallel of this whole kind of, uh, you know, theme of the sword in the in the grail and so forth in an old irish myth and you know it's all very mysterious and you know irish mythology and welsh mythology they are they are always somewhat obscure because they were you know we're talking about pre-christian culture and myth and so forth but it was all written down in the middle ages by christian monks who didn't really have a clue of the context uh, that they were writing about but anyway the monks wrote down this Irish myth, which does seem to come from quite an early time. It's about the the gods of the Tuatha de Danann. And it's a myth called The Fate of the Children of Turin. And it tells of a quest for a magical spear, which is eventually found with its head thrust into a cauldron of water, which bubbles and hisses around the burning tip. And this is interesting because King Arthur's sword that I just mentioned, and I'm sure everyone's heard of, Excalibur, The origin of Excalibur was actually, um, it was called Caladbolg, which means a bolt of lightning. So Excalibur is like a lightning bolt. And in this story, the the sword bubbling and hissing in the water is obviously a very blazing, hot, you know, lightning bolt kind of weapon itself. And there's also two other Irish myths, very kind of fragmented, not very well known, and they describe what's most likely the very same spear and in this um, this ancient myth, I shouldn't say ancient, we don't know how old it is, but it's obviously pre-Christian, um, but in that ancient story, then I'll say that spear has its head plunged in a cauldron of blood. So, you know, it has a lot of Irish antecedents as well as the later Christian one. And I should also mention that in, that, um, in those old Irish myths, the spear belongs to the god Lou, who is often associated with the lightning flash. And this also, we also get this in one of the earliest of Arthurian uh, tales called The Plunder of Anun, Anun being the Welsh otherworld. And in that story, um, the Welsh god who's conflated with the Irish loo thrusts his sword into the cauldron of the Nine Maidens. So it's all very sort of primal and, um, and also alchemical. The sacred marriage of the masculine and the feminine got a bit sort of I don't know, it becomes a little bit distant and and, uh, loses its uh, numinosity when it's conflated with the Christian story somehow. But yeah, so that's as much as we know. Although there is also, and this goes way back, and it's not even Celtic, there is an old story from Greece in which this is in the Hermetic teachings found in the Corpus Hermeticum, which date from uh, Hellenic Egypt, first to the third centuries, C.E., supposedly written by Hermes Trismegistus, thrice great Hermes, uh, in which there is talked about this great sacred vessel and into this sacred vessel a divine force flows down from the heavens. And we get a little bit of that, you know, very old piece in a German version of the Grail legend called Parzival by the German poet Wolfram von Eschenbach and uh, he actually says in his version of the grail story that the grail is like the crater the crater which is sent from the stars to the earth filled with divine wisdom and that souls who immerse themselves in it are able to consciously experience the divine and some people believe that the word the greek crater you know originally came became the word gradalis which became grail originally so it's all very mysterious, convoluted and interwoven. And um, like most mysteries, I think it's best or perhaps only really comprehended by being worked through in ritual or through um, you know, doing vision work with, with the tarot cards.
0: So you just covered so much. There's so much there to talk about and to unpack. I'm so excited about all of these things. First of all, I just wanted to underscore for our listeners, one of the things that you said about the knights, like in the story of the Arthurian legends, the knights are in pursuit of the goddess. They are there to bring the goddess back to the world by finding this cup, by finding this holy grail. So I think that that's interesting in terms of how we might read them in the tarot. Also thinking about then the sword belonging to the king, and how maybe the suit of swords even belongs to the king, and the swords in the tarot represent the suit of problems, or you know, there's a there's a violence obviously implied, and then the cups belonging to the goddess, as as do the um, the platters or the stones, right? The stones being the earth of the goddess, uh, the body, and then the cups being that sort of life giving force, and in a second, I really would love you to. Explicate a little bit the cauldron's relationship to Caridwin because there's so many fascinating stories about that. But you also touched upon this idea of the Order of the Golden Dawn, which I know that a lot of our listeners will have maybe heard the term, but probably don't know exactly what that is. And I just wanted to make the connection for them that author Edward Waite, the creator of the writer Waite Coleman Smith version of the deck, which they've heard a lot about on this show was a member of this Order of the Golden Dawn, which you said that, but I just want to underscore that for them. And I also was wondering about, you know, we're talking a lot about the masculine quality of the sword and the masculine quality of the the spear that, um, you know, penetrates or goes into the cauldron or, you know, gives blood, gives life, giving force and the feminine qualities of the stone and the feminine qualities of the cups. I'm wondering, because many pre-Christian cultures, indigenous cultures, which the pre-Celts would have been, allow for a lot more queerness in their culture, whereas now, um, you know, things are very binary and focused on, you know, the masculine penetrating the feminine or impregnating it or whatever. And I'm wondering, I mean, you might not know this, but um, I'm wondering if in the pre-Celtic traditions if there was like a two-spirit version or like a there was a room for queerness in that culture?
1: Not that I know of I haven't come across any um, suggestions of that I mean we don't know and of course as I said earlier the people that wrote everything down uh, were the Christians so they wouldn't have um, wanted to go that route and looked for it I mean that's a really good question and you know I'm, I'm not sure we'd ever be able to find anything but you know the Druids had this huge knowledge they had like 20 years of education of history and law mythology and all sorts of you know wisdom knowledge and so forth and they had to go into the other world to gain this knowledge from spirits but they never wrote it down because they were themselves they prided themselves on being uh, like living uh, repositories of wisdom And uh, it was almost felt like it was too mundane to write the stuff down. But unfortunately, you know, with the Romans getting rid of the Druidic colleges and the Christians then, you know, really getting rid of what was left, um, then none of this was really able to be conveyed from that fresh perspective of what pre-Christian Celtic culture would have been like. So I'm kind of racking my brains here. I'm sort of rolodexing through what I know of, Uh, early Irish myth and Welsh stories and so forth and I cannot honestly come across or or think of any myths or stories or legends that would have had that sort of the the two-spirit kind of theme running through it or characters appearing in that way but that's not to say that it never did exist we just don't know
0: there is a kind of homoerotic quality to the knights and their travels together in the um Arthurian legends I think but but you know I'm not an expert on that at all but um but yeah okay well so thank you for answering that that's really fascinating and it's interesting to hear about the druids and their conquering by the romans and then the christians can we circle back a little bit to that the the cauldron of caradwen because that's just such an amazing legend and story and i just we don't have to go into great detail about it but i i'd love our listeners to know a little bit more about this cauldron because last last season we talked about the suit of cups and and it's so relevant
1: yeah that's one of my favorite stories and um well the story without going into too much detail then is about this woman, a woman of supernatural power, who lived at the bottom of a lake in North Wales, known nowadays as Bala Lake. And uh, she had a great cauldron that she worked her spells in. And she had a son and a daughter. And the son was very um, ignorant, uh, very ugly. And she wanted to brew a cauldron of wisdom so that she could give him... To drink of it and he would at least be wise and um, someone who could really be somebody in the world. So the story goes that she goes up the mountains of Snowdonia and she uh, gathers all these herbs under the right seasons of the sun and the moon and she makes what is called a cauldron of Arwen. And Arwen is actually, it's kind of an untranslatable Welsh word um but it sort of means the flowing spirit perhaps it means the life force that flows through everything but it's also known as inspiration and I should say that back then poets were the ones who were described as being filled with the arwen of the goddess but poets weren't just people that wrote little verses or things that you read in a book or even did poetry slams poets in the Celtic tradition were also prophets and uh when they wrote their verses or, or composed their verses, it was because they'd gone into the other world and they'd gained this supernatural inspiration. And then they returned to our world and gave it forth as as prophetic utterances. So anyway, so the cauldron of Arwen or poetic inspiration or the flowing life force, whatever you want to think of Arwen as, was brewed to give to her son. The story goes that it had to brew for a year and a day after which three drops and three drops only would be distilled from it and would then be given to her son. Uh, And so she set by the cauldron to look after it during that time, a little boy from the local village. And his name was Guillaume Bach, which means little Guillaume. And just before the cauldron was ready and he'd done a good job stirring every day and keeping the fire stoked up and so on, three of these drops just flew out of the cordon and landed on little Guion's hand and he instinctively sucked his burning flesh. Well at that moment his whole mind was unrolled like a carpet and and, you know he could see everything in 360 degrees and he could see past and present and future and he was filled with all this magical inspiration, wisdom and knowledge that had been meant for Keridwen's son. And the first thing he realised was that, that Keridwen would know what had happened. And so he threw down the wooden spoon he'd been stirring the cauldron with and he ran out of her hut and he ran along the meadows of Bala Lake. And as he ran... Um, he could hear her coming behind him and so he turned into a hare, he shape-shifted into the fastest creature he could think of, a little hare, and tried to evade her but when she saw what had happened she turned into a greyhound and chased after him and nearly caught him but he saw that there was the lake coming up and so he dived down into the waters of the lake and he became a salmon. Um, And he just kind of wriggled away through the weeds, hopefully to safety. But Keridwen, being the goddess, being the wise woman, the priestess, the witch, whoever she was, this powerful, great feminine being, she turned herself into an otter. And the otter dived down after the little fish that was Gwion and nearly had him between her paws. At which point, Gwion, using his new magical powers, he leapt up into the air and he became... came a little bird, and when she saw this, of course, she leapt up into the air and she became a falcon, and she swooped down on the bird and tried to catch him in her talons. Then he turned himself for the last time into a little grain of wheat, because that was the smallest thing he could think of, and he landed with all these other grains of wheat on the threshing floor of a nearby mill. And she turned herself into a black hen and pecked and swallowed until she actually swallowed him up. Well, that wasn't the end of Little Gwion, although she'd hoped it would be. And she became bigger and bigger and bigger. And she realized she was pregnant with the little boy or whoever he had become. And she tried to actually kill him when he was born, but it just didn't work. So she threw him out to the sea and he went tossing on the waves for hundreds and hundreds of years. And eventually he fetched up, she'd actually wrapped him in a little leather coracle, or a little boat or bag, some say, um, but he fetched up on the, on the shores of Wales, of mid Wales. And when he arose out of the coracle, out of the little boat, he was no longer little gwyon and he was no longer a little newborn baby, but he was this um, shining, radiant poet whose name was Taliesin um, and who became one of the greatest Bardic poets of Wales. So, you know, this is told in the collection of Welsh stories from the Middle Ages called the Mabinogi, as if it's, you know, a little folk tale about a witch um, and a boy having a little contest there. And um, it's a story for children, which is what Mabinogi means, stories for the youth. But in fact, it's a thinly veiled tale of initiation through the cauldron of the goddess. And we can see this because of all the hints in the story. If you read between the lines... Um, So, you know, Keridwen was actually known as the muse of the druids. They were the one to whom they gave offerings of acorns and milk and honey and mead. And she gave them the Arwen, the inspiration. And Gwion, it seems, was probably nothing less than a young neophyte, uh, a young initiate. And we know this partly because his name Gwion means radiant, shining one. He's very, very similar to Fion or Finn in the Irish myth. And it's a name, sort of almost an epithet given to those who had gone into the other world and gained that, you know, shining aura of otherworldly power around them. So they were unmistakable. And so little Gwion turns into Taliesin, a name which means the shining brow. And, you know, he had to, you know, on the way there, he was first given the Arwen from the the, uh, cauldron of the goddess, but then he had to go through this shape-shifting battle with her. He died, as it were, when she swallowed him up, uh, but he was reborn through her, and then he was actually thrown out to sea, which, of course, is another symbol of the goddess, and he emerged from the sea, reborn again, as a a very wise and inspirational poet and bard. So, um, like in all the old mystery schools of the Middle East or Near East, he was um, twice born, perhaps even thrice born, if you count the C, uh, out of the feminine as part of his druidic initiation. And that was all through um, Keridwen's Cauldron of Inspiration.
0: That is so fascinating. I love that story so much about the story of initiation through relation to the goddess and a sort of death and rebirth and a um, shapeshifting adventure and through the through the wilds of nature. I only have a few more questions for you because um, we're coming so close to the end of our time together today, but they're they're sort of related to one another. So the first one is. You know, there's a there's a, an ongoing conversation in the you know in the spiritual communities about this word shaman or shamanic because you know of ideas about cultural appropriation and um, ancestral traditions. So I'm wondering, you know, you'd already mentioned that one of the ways to connect with the four hollows, these four magical objects, and the the myths of you know, Celtic or pre-Celtic uh, British Isles, was through through ritual or through vision questing. Would you call that work shamanic? And if not, could you tell us, or even if so, could you tell us a little bit more about what these practices must, might look like? Because I know you have a lot of them in your book, in your beautiful book, Grail Alchemy.
1: Oh, yes. Um, well... Um, yeah, the word shamanic, I've never wanted to use that because, as you know, it comes from the Siberian tradition and it's sort of been, you know, distorted in modern neo-shamanic um, kinds of work. So I, I tend not to use that. Um, like I said, it's always difficult because we don't know exactly what their mantic or, you know, magical practices were because the Christian scribes didn't write it down um the people that um practiced this you know shamanic like kind of journey into the spirit world to gain wisdom they were known as the phili and uh there's actually two spellings so but anyway if you think of phili it's a title actually it means both poet and a seer or prophet and it actually comes from the root word to see because to the Celts, vision and poetry, the rapture of illumination and the inspired uttering of it were inseparable. It was like the in-breath, the out of the ecstatic experience. And, you know, similar to Eurasian shamanic cultures, the Philly was trained in mantic techniques that taught them how to leave their body to ascend to the sky or descend to the underworld to communicate with the spirits in, in the underworld, the gods and goddesses I mentioned earlier, the Tuare de Danen, and spirits of the earth, trees, water, and so forth, and the ancestral spirits. Um, they were, you know, trained as mediators between the um, other world and, and the human race, their tribe, of course, at the time. And their ecstatic journeys that, that these fili went on, they, they took them in order to gain something that they called imbas which roughly translates as enlightened knowledge and was seen as a gift, like grace, a gift from the God that kindles fire in the head, they called it. And so they would bring back uh, insights, prophecy, poetry, hidden truths and enlighten the tribe with that knowledge. And this actually went on way um, into more recent times so that, for example, in the 17th century, there were Celtic, well, they wouldn't have been really called Celtic, they would say Irish chieftains, or perhaps we should call them leaders because they weren't even chieftains in the 17th century, but leaders of you know, rebel movements against the English oppressors. Before they went into battle, they would often call upon their uh, druid-like advisor to perhaps sleep on a burial mound or one of these ancient mounds in the landscape, which were used for ritual as well as burial, uh, in order to you know, go into the other world and and come back and give them information on strategy uh, for the coming battle, and you know help them know what to do best or what even the outcome was likely to be. So you know this is a very important part of their service, which we could say was very similar to uh, what is known as shamanic kind of workings today.
0: Wow, that's so amazing! I love that so much. So that's something that people can go back and look at and see um maybe i wonder if using that word phile f i l i f i l i right so it's like it so instead of saying shaman they could say yeah phil, like that they're they're studying phileic practices rather than shna- shamanic practices and i also really love this idea you know, you've talked about it several times with um, William Butler Yeats and also, you know, the now the the leaders of 18th century Ireland, this idea of the, the magical practice as being in alignment with the rebel, with the resistor, with the freedom fighter who's, you know, seeking to overthrow the oppressor. And I love um, that that connection is just so present there well so it seems that we have come to the end of our time together today I am so grateful and truly in awe of your wealth of knowledge I just want to read everything you've written and study with you and I know that in fact you do offer online courses and potentially even um, I guess after COVID sacred tours and things like that could you tell us like where we could go to find out about your work and how we might uh, learn more from you
1: yeah, um, well, my website, well, I've got two websites. There's um, chalicecentre.net, and that's centre spelt the English way. So it's C-H-A-L-I-C-E, like a chalice, C-E-N-T-R-E, centre.net. And then the website which uh, talks about my tours and retreats, sacred journeys and pilgrimages, that's Celtic celticspiritjourneys.com. I'm just leading one to the Glastonbury area and and colleague is leading one to Scotland next year. Um, but if you go to the chalicecentre.net one, if you're interested in, in doing some really in-depth studying, then you can find out about my um, Avalon Mystery School, which is a three-grade training programme in the arts of sacred magic. And, you know, anyone who wants to go really deeply into, in particular, the British, although there's quite a lot of Celtic in there, um, mysteries and esoteric practices um, abound there. A lot of vision journeying. There's even a little section on the tarot, <laughs> and so forth. Um, that's a place to really go deeply into these traditions. And not a, it's kind of a mixture of native traditions, ancestral teachings, and also Western esoteric tr- teachings. So it's a combination of all three.
0: my goodness sign me up for that I am going straight away after this to go investigate that thank you so much Mara for being here this has been such a pleasure and we are so grateful for you
1: thank you so much I've really enjoyed it so it's lovely to meet you Amanda and uh, thank you so much again So friends,
0: stay tuned for next week. We're going to have the fabulous Edgar Fabian Frias on the show to talk about the seven of wands, which is really about staking a claim and defending your territory. So we're really excited to talk about that. And I just wanted to remind you that we've got that candle magic workshop coming up. So check that out in the show notes. I'd love to see you there.
1: Between the Worlds is hosted by Amanda Yates-Garcia and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs with editing help from Jiha Lee. Our podcast
0: icon is created by Maria Minnis, aka Tiny Parsnip, links in the show notes. And our font is created by Leah Hayes. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please consider
1: leaving us a sweet review and or posting your favorite parts. You can tag us at Oracle of LA or Between the Worlds podcast. Thank you. Turn your will towards your desire, fire guides you on, and lights the path and shines the way, call upon the suit of one.